Welcome to the Genius of Your Genes Summit. We're going to be talking today with Trudy Scott, who's an expert in GABA and other neurotransmitters. There are some genes, some very important genes that uh, make our neurotransmitters. And when I wanted to do the summit, the first person that came to mind to help me do this particular part of the summit was Trudy Scott. So Trudy, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited that we're getting to talk about this. I really look forward to it. Well, I know you've done a lot of summits. I've I've uh, been on been on a lot of summits as a guest, but this is probably the first time that you've actually discussed genes. And I think that genes are, you know, I mean, I know for a fact they're here to stay. And so many people listening that may have heard you before probably have never heard you talk about genes. So I'm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just full of questions and just run with it because you're the expert here. Uh, I wanted to know, first of all, you know, as far as genetic quite, uh, testing goes, some people are saying it's not ready for prime time yet. So what's your feeling about uh, millions of people who've already had their genes tested so far? And uh, I've got some outstanding experts on the summit using information about genes. So just give us your opinion on on genetic testing and what's there, what's hidden in our DNA. I'm a big fan of Dr. Ben Lynch and he's written a great book called Dirty Genes. And I, he's got a chapter, his introductory chapter is called Your Genes Are Not Your Destiny. So I think that's a really important message that we want to be getting across. And I'm sure you're getting that across in all your, your interviews that, um, you know, he says we can transform our genetic destiny through a combination of diet, supplements, sleep, stress relief, reduced exposure to environmental toxins. With the right tools, we can transcend our inherited tendencies to disease. This includes anxiety, ADHD, birth defects, cancer, dementia, depression, heart disease, insomnia, obesity. So I think it's really important to realize that you know, we might do our gene testing and we may see something, but realize that it's not our destiny. That being said, it gives us this clue, this message that we've got this predisposition. And this can help us inform um, some of our diet changes that we might make. It can inform some of the supplements that we may need to take. It can help us if we are doing something and we're not responding as we would expect to some nutrient uh, changes, maybe using the amino acids. And it can give us this clue that now we need to really look after ourselves in this area. I do feel that it's in, the, in its infancy. Certainly there are some uh, genetic polymorphisms that are more studied than others. There are some that are not as studied and I, I feel like we've still got a lot to learn about some of those. But the I think the bottom line is that diet and nutrients and lifestyle are very, very powerful and they can actually uh, turn our genes on and turn our genes off. And we're going to talk about some of those today. That's beautifully said. Uh, so you're an expert in GABA and one of the genes that I, it's a neurotransmitter gene, a GAD1, that um, to me is really important in our family when I've looked at everybody's genes, a lot of people, there's a lot of variants in these GAD1 genes. So I became interested in that a long time ago. And then, of course, for years, I've been following your work. Um, can you just talk, just go anywhere you want to go with the GAD1 gene? Okay. So GAD stands for glutamic acid decarboxylase, and it's an enzyme that helps us to make GABA from glutamate. Mm -hmm. 
And GABA stands for gamma amino butyric acid. It's both a calming neurotransmitter and it's an amino acid. And it's a very, you know, as you say, as I said, it's calming. So it helps us feel relaxed. It helps us feel less tense. It helps us feel uh, calm and like we can handle the world. We don't feel overwhelmed. So when we've got good levels of GABA, we're going to feel great. Now, there is a, a number of studies looking at the, at polymorphisms or genetic uh, defects in the GAD1 gene. There's, there's some other GAD genes, but if we just take the GAD1 gene for an as an example, I'm going to just read from you uh, a paper, 2006 paper. It's called The Association Between Glutamic Acid Decarboxylase Genes, so this is the GAD genes, and Anxiety Disorders, Major Depression, and Neuroticism. And this is typical what you, the typical sort of thing you're going to hear in some of these studies, where they say, You've got this gene and you've got this connection to anxiety. So what they're saying is abnormalities in the GABA neurotransmitter system have been noted in subjects with mood and anxiety disorders. The GAD gene synthesized GABA from glutamate and then uh, we are uh, reasonably uh, have the susceptibility for these conditions. So here we're saying we've got the susceptibility. They're not saying for sure that if we've got this GAD uh, polymorphism, we are going to have anxiety, but we've got this susceptibility. And in the study, they examined GAD1 and GAD2, which is another gene similar to the GAD1 gene. And they, they're looking at the association for genetic risk across a range of disorders like depression, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, which is fear of open spaces, social phobia or social anxiety, and being more neurotic. And they looked at uh, over 9,000 uh, participants in the study, and they suggest that variations in the GAD1 gene may impact susceptibility across a range of anxiety disorders and depression. So I think what I want to get put forward here is that you're going to see a lot of studies like this. And a lot of people see, oh, I've got the GAD, one of the GAD genes, therefore I've got anxiety and there's nothing I can do, do about it. My mom had anxiety, my grandmother had anxiety, we've all got these genes, there's absolutely nothing that we can do. But I want to highlight two things in this conclusion. The word may, it may impact you and the susceptibility. So it's showing you that you've got the susceptibility. And you know, my, you wanted me to share my story with anxiety and the reason I got into this work. And I happen to have some genetic polymorphisms in the GAD genes, um, certainly in the GAD1 gene, GAD67 as well. So I had this predisposition I didn't know it when I first uh, had started to get my anxiety. It was in my late 30s, and I remember uh, getting increasingly anxious, waking in the early hours with this feeling of doom, uh, imagining the worst when there was no reason to feel like this, um, having I had a few panic attacks, which were absolutely terrifying. I just remember you know, saying to my husband, I've got to get some oxygen. I've got to get some oxygen. I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know what it was. And I... Uh, went to a nurse practitioner, I worked with a naturopath, and I started to find this powerful connection between what we eat, uh, nutrient status, hormone imbalances, toxins, and how it was affecting my anxiety. And despite the fact that 
I have this gene, I was over, able to overcome my anxiety. I, you know, I was eating a, um, I discovered I had gluten issues. I discovered I had heavy metals. I had a mouthful of amalgam. So I had mercury toxicity. I'd worked in a, um, in a petroleum uh, site. Wow. Um, and so I had high levels of lead <clears throat> toxicity. Um, I was eating the wrong diet. I had low progesterone and estrogen dominance. I had all of these factors, but by changing my diet and adding in specific nutrients, I was able to overcome this. So it, but it does show that you know, if I'd known that earlier, it might have, you know, it might have made me freak out. Oh my gosh, I've got these genes. There's nothing that I could do. But I think it's useful to know that, yes, that was one little susceptibility that I had. Now I've got some other gene polymorphisms. I've got, you know, I've got a, a um, one of the MTHFR1 polymorphisms. I've got, you know, I've got various different other factors. The fact that I've got the MTHFR1 polymorphism uh, means that I may have a, a harder time detoxing. And I've discovered that over the years. But what it does is it helps me make, you know, make changes in, in my life to avoid those toxins and to do things that can help me detox and support my detox pathway. So I think that the genes are very helpful to help guide us, but I don't think we need to say, okay, I've got this uh, GAD1 gene, I've got anxiety, you know, that's my lot, there's absolutely nothing that I can do about it. Yeah, but it's like, I totally agree with you. And it feels empowering to know that we have something to do. Um, and then, of course, you, there you are, for example, out in the world with a tremendous amount of information, a great newsletter that comes out all the time. And if people can find you, then they can get answers. To um, I love what I call the three Ps, which is predict, which is what you're able to do with your genes, prevent, it from happening at all, and then being able to personalize a program for you to prevent it. And so, you know, I really want to go into the epigenetic part most of all, but this is a pretty common variant. Like I've looked at quite a few gene reports after several years, and um, well, I don't see it, at, I mean, other ones like COMT is much more common, but I do see it. And then, so I just want to explain too that um, glutamate turns into GABA, it gets recycled back around again to glutamate, but this cycle that happens constantly and very quickly within seconds, um, that this gene is right there. And so glutamate has to turn into GABA and the GAD1 is, is the gene that converts glutamate into GABA. And so with the GAD1 variant, you're not doing a very good job of that, of, of turning glutamate into GABA. So, well, you're an expert in GABA and your newsletters are fantastic. I think everybody, hopefully, if they haven't, don't already know who, about you and your work, that they rush to your website and sign up for your newsletter. Um, I don't know anyone that understands GABA as well as you do. So could you talk to us about GABA? Like, let's say you aren't producing enough and, you know, anxiety. I, I know one thing, um, bifidus, which is one of my favorite bacteria, produces GABA in the gut. And of course, having a healthy gut is very important. But what do you recommend? To, you know, it's kind of complicated. Like how do they get, uh, should they take GABA as a supplement? Um, is there ways to produce it naturally? If you just would kind of run with the epigenetic part of GABA, uh, just tell us what we should do if we have a variant in GIA. And even, I mean, do you think there are times when 
people don't have the variant, so it's not genetically caused at all, but there are other reasons why they could be having issues with GABA? I do, Donna. Um, we could have a, a variant in another gene that's affecting our vitamin B6, for example. Uh, mm. We may not have that variant. We just may have a gluten sensitivity, um, which is uh, damaging the gut, and therefore we're not absorbing the nutrients from the foods that we're eating. We may have low hydrochloric acid, and that is affecting the way that we digest protein so we don't have the raw materials for, for to make those. So I don't think that we can say it's always genetic. And even mm -hmm. if it is genetic, maybe we that gene is not expressing and we've got B, low B6 anyway from a dietary you know, from a dietary point of view. So I think, I think we need, we can look at uh, both, both aspects and I, I'd love to talk about GABA, but before we do that, I just wanted to share the other example of the, the study, because this was a 2019 study and this was looking at the um, adversity during pregnancy and then downstream impacts on the child, because we know that, mm. um, the, that these genetic changes can be uh, multi-generational. Mm. Uh, and this was a, a paper that actually found that exposure of the fetus to high levels of cortisol may trigger widespread changes in the epigenetic landscape. So this is if the mom's really stressed out, she may have high cortisol levels. And what happens is they found that males may have high levels of ADHD, the children, and the girls may be more anxious. And in this paper, they actually talk about the GAD1 gene and the GAD67 gene and increased levels of glutamate. And they say this is one epigenetic mechanism that may account for this tendency towards um, excitation, which is the ADHD in the boys and the anxiety in the girls. And I think it's good to know, but as I said earlier, it doesn't mean that they're destined for ADHD or anxiety, or it doesn't mean that there's nothing that can be done. So you'd ask the question, what do we do if we've got low GABA levels? And the way that I work is I, I have my clients do a questionnaire. And the way that we can uh, clue into the fact that someone may possibly have low GABA levels is to look at symptoms. Have they got this physical tension? Are they feeling it in their shoulders and their neck? Have they got this feeling of overwhelm? They may also have panic attacks and they may use things like alcohol to self-medicate, to mm. calm down, to relax when they're socializing, to relax at the end of the day. So I'll have them rate their symptoms on a scale of one to 10 and then we'll have them try the actual amino acid GABA. Uh, it's, I, I like to use it sublingually um, either sublingual capsule or opened onto the tongue for the quickest effects. And then we'll see how they respond. If they say, oh, I feel relaxed or I feel like I just had a glass of wine. That's a Does it happen kind that quickly? Response. Is it, do they just suddenly feel it or? They, you're going to feel it very quickly. You're going to feel it within sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes a minute oh, wow. or two so minutes. So It's important when you go to the store to buy the capsules though, not to, it does come in tablets. You don't want to do the tablets. Yeah. I have see, I've had so many people say GABA does not work for me, and it's because they're swallowing it. I like to mm. have it, you know, sublingual. It's the most effective way. And then the important thing is to start really low. So to start with 125 milligrams. A lot of people will go and buy 500 milligrams or 750 milligram capsule, and that's just way too much for most people. So we want to start low and see how how much did that improve? Did our tension go from an eight out of ten to maybe a six out of ten, or did it go to a four out of ten? If it didn't go down too many notches, then we would 
over the course of the next week, increase our dose, maybe go from 125 milligram capsule to two of the, the sublinguals, 125. I like a, an over-the-counter product called uh, GABA Calm, which is by Source Naturals. Otherwise, getting a, a low-dose GABA powder and opening up the capsule or just getting the powder. And you can feel the, that response really quickly. Now, we talked a little bit about glutamine earlier on, and mm-hmm. glutamine uh, can also help. Glutamine can, some of it can convert to GABA and it can be calming, but for some it can be stimulating. And for the folks that it may be a little bit more stimulating, maybe those are the folks that have the GAD1 gene or that, that they have the GAD1 gene that is expressing. I have heard some folks say, I have GAD1, therefore I cannot use glutamine. And I just want to say that that's not always the case. It may be how much you can tolerate. It may be that you need a lower amount. And I always say, listen to your body. If you take glutamine and you have it feels too stimulating, then, then don't take it. But don't say, I've got the GAD1 gene, therefore I can't take it. Um, in, the, in, the, in the case of you know, someone who's got high, um, they've got anxiety because of high cortisol, then we would use something like Seraphos or Rhodiola or the B vitamins to help with that um, high cortisol kind of anxiety. And um, if, if someone has ADHD, like the example I just gave you, because the mom was anxious, now the child has ADHD, uh, we would do the same. We would look to see what uh, you mentioned being, you know, personalizing uh, uh, someone's uh, ap- approach. So if they've mm-hmm. got ADHD, maybe GABA is a factor. Maybe high cortisol is a factor. Maybe they need iron. Iron is a cofactor for making our neurotransmitters, and it plays a big role in in ADHD. It also plays a role in, uh, zinc plays a role in ADHD. And I mentioned how zinc is a cofactor for making our neurotransmitters. I actually work, I actually have someone in my community, a mom who had heard me talk about GABA. Her daughter had, uh, was, you know, at school, she was acting out and performing. The teachers wanted to get her on Ritalin. Mm -hmm. And they said she needs to get on medication because she's got ADHD. And the mom said, look, I've, I've got anxiety. I'm pretty sure that my daughter has anxiety too. And she got her on, uh, had her started taking GABA Calm, which is the sublingual GABA. And this child was a new child. So her issue was anxiety, which was manifesting as ADHD. So sometimes it's hard to figure out, is it you know, focus issues? Is it anxiety issues? And with children, it can be challenging sometimes to figure out, uh, if, is it anxiety or is it something else? Are they anxious? Therefore, they uh, can't focus and therefore they're acting out. So that's why doing a trial is such a great way to figure mm-hmm. this out. And what well, you said earlier, individualizing things for each person is the way to go. It really is. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, you remind, as you were talking along, you reminded me of something I read recently. Um, and I, and I, it's like kind of put two, two different ideas together. But, um, you know, they're, they're actually looking at um, the exp- like something that might happen to a person that's stressful, painful, causes post traumatic stress disorder, you know, like something bad, bad experience happens. It doesn't necessarily show up in their child. It'll show up in the grandchild. So um, I was watching the research around that. 
how we pass on our traumatic experiences, basically. And so the um, so I started thinking, well, sure, that makes sense because when a woman is carrying a child, let's say a little girl, in her fifth month, the mother is basically, that's when the little baby's uh, eggs begin to form in the um, in her ovaries. And so the mother is has a lot of control over how healthy those eggs are, but it will be the next generation when her daughter has a little girl or boy, that's when it's going to show up because the, the anxiety was in the grandmother, basically. The eggs are in the mom, but the anxiety that it's getting passed down to the grandchild. So I don't think a lot of people realize why you'll see these studies and that they'll see, um, you know, they'll take a bunch of mice, for example, and they'll stress them out. But the diabetes and obesity and all the problems show up in the grandchild's generation. So I just thought that might be kind of interesting thought for people. Um, yes, I've seen some of that research too, I have. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's something that we definitely need to be aware of. But that being said, uh, it doesn't mean that we can't change the outcome for the, the children or the grandchildren. We, there's something that we can do about it. Now, mm-hmm. Donna, you'd mentioned that, that you have some uh, GAD genes, GAD1 genes in, your, in you, you personally and in your family. I'd love to just share a little bit about what you found and what works for you. Well, because I knew that was, first I found out I had the work, it had the uh, genetic variants in several of the genes. <clears throat> for me, they're homozygous, meaning just one copy, but there's a number of the GAD1 genes. And so I have a bunch of heterozygous. So, you know, just I just I think all the symptoms that you mentioned that come along with GABA, um, it's more difficult to fall asleep because uh, I tend to be worried, you know, about things, be kind of a perfectionist, just being calm generally. I also have another gene uh, variant called COMP, C-O-M-T, which a lot of people have, and I have the version where if I get stressed out, my dopamine shoots up along with my adrenaline. And it stays up, so I don't degrade it and clear it. So put the two together, and that's, you know, I, so what I realized, <clears throat> I also have a lot of genes for diabetes. And I would get these skin tags, these are little teeny raised things on, your, on my neck. And I learned from Dr. Jonathan Wright when I was going through my fellowship at A4M that that is a sign of insulin resistance. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I don't eat sugar. Uh, I have a almost low, very low sugar diet, no, I just get a little bit of fruits and, and some grains sometimes. But, and by the way, I want to tell you something about the gov, answer your question about that. But um, so I, I thought, well, why, why would I get these little skin tags here and there? So um, what I realized was that the insulin, me, the insulin was going up because of stress, how I experience stress. And that raises your cortisol, which then raises your blood sugar. So it wasn't from my diet, it was from the stress. So once I realized that, I started looking for other clues so I understood myself better. And uh, the other thing was, uh, there's a, uh, you know, the big issue going on about don't eat any grains, they're bad for you, give them up, you know, our ancient ancestors didn't eat grains. Well, we've evolved over time and Plenty of people, plenty of our ancestors did grow and eat grains. But if I only do a, only protein and vegetables, I stop sleeping. So I feel like, you know, I've got kind of a perfect storm. Uh, what the Japanese um, have a rice. It's called uh, True Roots makes it. It's um, 
it's called, well, the sprouted rice, but there's the one that True Roots has, is genetically um, designed or whatever, you know, to produce more GABA. So many, many times when I'm working with people and I realize that stress is such an issue for them that they're not going to get well and be able to, you know, do some of the other things I'm recommending until we handle the, their reaction, you know. And I find this GABA rice is wonderful. Like a couple of nights of having it, of course, I recommend people have it with fermented vegetables, which are helping them digest it and eat up any sugar in the um, any carbs in the rice, but it's amazing. So that was like kind of one of my first things. I uh, started tying some one and one together <clears throat> and realized that for me, for my evening meal, at least several times a week, I need to have uh, a rice like this that's high in GABA. It's, it's actually more effective for me than, than the supplement is, um, but I take the supplement also. And um, I learned from you to use it sublingually and I know that you like PharmaGaba too. Um, which, could you talk about PharmaGaba some? Can you explain how it's unique and why you like it? Yes, I will. But I want to just follow on from what you're just talking about because I think mm-hmm. this is a wonderful example of looking at your genes and then figuring out what it's doing. The fact that you mm-hmm. had these diabetes genes and it was nothing to do with the diet, it was to do with stress. So this is this is perfect. We don't want to just take that genetic uh, uh, polymorphism that we're seeing, that defect and saying, okay, this is what the problem is. You were able to piece all the puzzle pieces together, which mm-hmm. I think Because the, the clues, they were clues that helped me think about it and go on and come up with some solutions. Yes, um, I love it. It's a and matter of pulling a lot of different things together, which sometimes, you know, it takes time to do that. But I yeah. know now that I've got diet worked out just fine, but stress is yeah. probably more important than, than sleeping than diet is even in my life. Yeah. I I love it. I think it's perfect. And and you were, you were a detective there putting all the little puzzle pieces together and figuring out, well, what, what is driving this? So I think it's, it's a perfect, um, yeah, perfect example for people on the summit here to hear how you figured that out. And um, to answer your question about GABA versus pharma GABA, I actually am a bigger fan of GABA. Um, mm. I started using GABA when I first started doing this work. And then when pharma GABA became popular uh, about 12 years ago when I wrote my book, I had a number of my clients who were doing well with GABA um, try PharmaGaba and we didn't get as good results. And it was a very, very small group. So in my book, I write about the fact that I'm not such a fan of PharmaGaba, but over the years, I've had folks tell me, yes, they prefer PharmaGaba. So I think it's mm-hmm. very individualized. Mm-hmm. And I think it's you know a matter of trying one versus the other and seeing what works for you. You'll hear people say, well, GABA can't possibly work because it won't cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, PharmaGaba is much more effective at doing that. I haven't, uh, you know, that's a myth as far as I'm concerned. I think it really is individualized. And we do know now that uh, there's other mechanisms as to how GABA could work. Um, It it may be related to the gut. You talked about uh, bacteria in the gut. It may be related to how, you know, it may be communicated by the immune system, uh, by the vagus nerve. Uh, It may be the fact that we've got all these receptors uh, throughout the body. So the fact that you feel that physical, physical relief when you use GABA. We've got uh, GABA receptors in our muscles and our endocrine tissue. So we don't really know. Um, 
for sure, there's definitely uh, more research to be done. I actually interviewed Dr. Karazian on my mm-hmm. recent anxiety summit, and we talked about this topic because he's always been of the point of view that GABA won't work because of, it won't get through the blood-brain barrier. He has uh, folks do the GABA challenge. If you take a high amount of GABA, and he's talking about 2,000 milligrams of GABA, and you get a result, that means you've got a leaky blood-brain barrier. And we talked about it, and he says, no, that was just a theory. We don't have any mm-hmm. research to support that. So I feel like we've got a lot to learn still mm-hmm. with GABA. Uh, the main thing is if it works and, um, and adding in these other things, like you mentioned the GABA rice, I think that's amazing that you found uh, this. And I've seen, I've seen some of the research on it and it's pretty interesting uh, that it's, it's having this effect on you. And some people obviously can't tolerate rice at all, um, mm-hmm. but if you can and it's giving you those benefits, I think that's really great. Traditionally, people had one big pot to throw uh, that they threw all their food in and cooked it together with a lot of other substances, vegetables and roots and all kinds of things, herbs. And I think it's a good way to prepare them and cook them for a long time and then eating them with um, fermented vegetables because they have the bacteria that are going to eat up the sugar, which is the problem people have with carbs. There's a gene called AMY1 that you can, it's um, not, it's not on the 23andMe test because it's a, or other others because um, you get a what's called a copy number. So you can have many copy numbers of AMY1. So you need to know if you have a very um, small amount of AMY1 or you have, you have more, that will tell you how well you do one carb. So that's measuring AMY1 stands for amylase. So we can get good clues from, from our genes about how we do with carbs. And then of course, like in Japan and places where where um, grains are uh, a big part of their diet, they have a larger pancreas too for handling them. So I, I hate to see people just throw them out saying they're bad for you when there's a lot, a lot around whether we should eat them or not. Um, but anyway, it, oh, and I was going to say black rice is also high in GABA. If there are people that, and you know, you can also, if you've been off of them for a long time and you don't have the microbes in the gut to digest them, uh, you can just start by throwing a handful in soup that you're making, a vegetable soup, for example. Uh, you know, so soak it first to get rid of the phytic acid unless it's sprouted. So those are my workarounds for, for, for that. But I really, really found it's a simple, where people with a GAD and with GABA issues, they do need some grains in their diet. Very interesting. And it's very interesting that you talk about the uh, the Japanese having a bigger pancreas. I did not know that. Uh, but interestingly enough, GABA has an impact on the islet cells in the pancreas. And there's a number of studies mm. that show that GABA can actually um, help mitigate some of the symptoms of diabetes. Uh, there's an, a study oh, that yeah. is coming out now looking at uh, GABA uh, b- playing a role in the prevention of type 1 diabetes. So wow. it's very interesting how, you know, and possibly the, the GABA in the GABA rice is having an impact as well. So it's mm-hmm. interesting making all of these connections, really is. Definitely. So besides being able to take a supplement, what about yoga, meditation, other ways to reduce stress in your life? Uh, that's probably a big part of what you guide people to do, right? Yes. And interestingly enough, um, I came across a really good article in the San Francisco Yoga Mag. And it's, the oh. title is Practicing Yoga and Meditation Reverses DNA Damage That Makes Us Sick and Depressed. So they're talking about how everyday stresses, 
you talked about stress, um, can actually lead to uh, food sensitivities, how food sensitivities and toxins will put us in the sympathetic um, you know, system overdrive. So we're in this fight or flight mode. And this increases our production of a molecule called uh, nuclear factor kappa B, NF kappa B. Mm. What that does is it actually turns on genes that make proteins called cytokines, which increase inflammation and contribute to illness and disease. And <coughs> in this particular study, in this article, they looked at 10 years of studies looking at how our genes are affected by practices such as yoga and meditation and Tai Chi. And they found that as well as relaxing us, it actually changes how our genes are expressed. So here we've got this wonderful um, method of changing our genes, reducing our inflammation. And we've got many, many studies showing that yoga and meditation boost our GABA levels. So we're getting those calming mm. effects at the same time as well. So of course, once I read this and when you interviewed, you asked me to come on the summit, I like to look and look for new research. Mm. And I thought, well, I wonder if GABA actually has an impact on these NF-kappa-B um, uh, compounds as well. And sure enough, I found a study that says that GABA inhibits NF-kappa B activation in lymphocytes and wow. pancreatic islet beta cells. So it's lowering wow. inflammation and it's improving <clears throat> diabetes. So GABA so that's is... that's the tie-in with the type 1 study, type 1 yeah. diabetes, which is pretty amazing. You it know, really the people, the, my understanding of type 1, there's always an infection that precedes the type 1 diabetes, which is inflammation. So it's all tied together. It's just pretty fascinating. It really is. And I want to share something else about GABA, which I think is fascinating, is it, it has effect uh, with certain toxins. Uh, there's uh, two uh, animal studies looking at toxicity caused by fluoride. And the what they found is that the fluoride uh, damaged the, the thyroid, of course, uh, caused hypothyroidism. And when they mm -hmm. gave GABA to these uh, test uh, uh, mice, it totally reversed the hypothyroidism that was caused by the fluoride. So wow. I look, that's I a look, big one. It is. And then they did a similar study and they found that liver damage caused by fluoride was also reversed by GABA. So I think we're going to just find more and more and more uh, research on the, the uh, benefits of GABA. I'm just, you know, such a big fan as well as well, well, helping with anxiety. Look at all of these other impacts. And then that has a ripple down effect because when we expose to toxins, it's going to affect, our, you know, the way our genes express. It's going to affect um, how we digest food. It's going to affect our stress level. So there's all of these little things that play a role together. Mm -hmm. You know, really, um, I decided years ago that you can help people get on a really good diet for themselves. And, but be above diet is stress. Like if you're going to really help somebody get well, you've got to calm that stress down. Now, now another neurotransmitter that we should talk about is serotonin because there are serotonin receptors that um, I do see variants for when I look at people's genes. So uh, can you just talk about just anything you feel like saying about serotonin? Because it's another issue and it's definitely maybe not, I mean, it has different functions than GABA. So can we talk about that? 
Yes, so with low serotonin anxiety, the difference is that it's more of a mental anxiety. It's the worry in the head, the ruminating thoughts. We also have insomnia with low serotonin like we do with low GABA. Mm. With low GABA, it's usually lying in bed stiff and tense. With low serotonin, it's often lying in bed, you know, thinking about things, worrying mm. about things, ruminating, uh, negative self-talk, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, PMS. The, the afternoon cravings, uh, with all of their neurotransmitter deficiencies, there's a cravings aspect. I said with low GABA, we self-medicate to feel calm and to fit in. With low serotonin, we might self-medicate with carbs, for example, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, mm-hmm. afternoon and evening, because that's when our serotonin takes a dip. So again, with low serotonin, we rate symptoms on a scale of 1 to 10. I'll have my clients do a trial of tryptophan or 5-HTP, and we see what kind of response we get, and then we titrate up. If we're not getting any additional benefits, then we go back down to a lower dose. The I, I start people on tryptophan. Uh, some people do better on tryptophan versus 5-HTP, and I... I haven't looked into this a lot, but I did find a paper when I was preparing for this interview saying that genetic variations in the serotonin transporter gene may explain it, but they do say more research is needed. So that might be the reason why some do better on tryptophan versus 5-HTP. Up till now, I've had clients just use tryptophan. If they're not getting the response that we would expect based on their symptoms, then we might switch to 5-HTP. When I don't use 5-HTP as if someone does have high cortisol, I wouldn't start with 5-HTP because there is uh, some research showing that 5-HTP can actually raise cortisol levels. So in that instance, I would start with tryptophan. But I've even had some people who have high cortisol and they do really well on 5-HTP. So it's really, really individualized for each person. Well, that's kind of confusing because tryptophan converts into 5-HTP, so you're getting it anyway. And then it goes on to make melatonin. By the way, I have a gene called AANAT that converts serotonin to melatonin. I have a variant there. Um, and my aunt never sleeps. She just doesn't make melatonin. Uh, I always wondered about her. When does she sleep? She's always awake. And then when I found that I had that one little variant, it's not really very severe, but it made me wonder if she has more more uh, of an issue with that gene because she just doesn't sleep. But that pathway, tryptophan to 5-HTP to melatonin, it seems like it doesn't matter where. I, here's my question. Um, why does it matter to use tryptophan first? Do you, do you ever figure that out? It's close to the... Uh, example that I've always been given is that it's closer to being a food. So some people do better Mm. with it. Um, And the fact that 5-HTP may, maybe some, you know, it's from this uh, plant in Africa, maybe someone doesn't do as well with with a plant-based supplement. I don't Mm. know. I just know that some people do and some don't. Some people are afraid to use the tryptophan and recommend the 5-HTP because tryptophan can go the other way, down another pathway and create quinolinic acid, which is another, uh, it's a brain toxin basically too. So do you, do you ever look into that pathway? 
I um, have uh, seen the research. There is no, no studies that I'm aware of that shows that supplementing with tryptophan can have that impact. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a theory that it can. I've had people uh, look at high um, quinolinic acid on the oat test and still mm-hmm. be fine taking tryptophan. So again, mm-hmm. I think it That's is very variable. Yeah, because and I know, I know- I was going to say, I know there's a lot of people who just don't go, they just say, I'm not going to use tryptophan for that, you know, for that reason. Um, and I'm just going to have people use 5-HTP. But if you've got someone who's not responding to 5-HTP um, and they are responding to tryptophan, then I think, you know, that's a, a good reason to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I work with a lot of children with um, autism and they have the OATS test and they will be high in quinolinic acid and there will always be an infection in their body, particularly a yeast infection. When you bring the yeast infection under control, the pathway normalizes and they sleep. So they're not sleeping, get the yeast infection under control. Now tryptophan is going down the right pathway and into melatonin. So just my personal experience with that. Uh, but you have, a, you have a tryptophan brand that you like. I think it's always good to give people brand names because, you know, they waste a lot of money getting the wrong thing, basically. Yes, I like the Lidke tryptophan, L-I-D-T-K-E. I've just had really good results with it. The the quality is really good. I've had some people come to me and they've been using another company's tryptophan and just haven't had the results. So they switched over to the Lidke and found a better results. Um, the other thing that I wanted- What do you think wanted- that is? Do you think it's just, I mean, an amino acid is an amino acid, right? It may be a quality. I don't know. I just mm. I know that um, I've, it's something that I've, I've, I've stuck with it's and it's worked well for me. So I just wanted to follow up on your comment about working with kids with autism and them having a yeast infection and the high quinolinic acid. Uh, we do, tying this back to uh, tryptophan and concerns about it converting to uh, quinolinic acid is that having enough vitamin B6 on board can help prevent that going down the wrong pathway. And we know that mm-hmm. B6 is important for when it comes to inflammation and infections as well. So I think making sure that having enough uh, B6 is really, really important. And then the other thing that I wanted to share about uh, what I've discovered with some of these uh, uh, polymorphisms when it comes to serotonin is using gelatin and collagen. <clears throat> A lot of people are using it uh, to heal their gut, oh, wow, using yeah. it for skin health. And um, I gelatin does not contain any tryptophan. So there's um, the, the, these studies called acute tryptophan depletion studies where they would give uh, participants a formulation of amino acids which did not contain tryptophan. And they used these studies to do some of the um, antidepressant research many, many years ago. More recently, they've started using collagen and gelatin in these studies because they know that it actually lowers mm. serotonin mm. levels because it doesn't contain tryptophan. And I've, I, you know, I reached out to my community and said, how do you respond to gelatin and collagen? Many people do great, no problems with mood. There's a subset of people that seem to get more anxious, more depressed and have more insomnia when they use collagen and gelatin. And one of the possible mechanisms could be the fact that they, they're they're being depleted of their serotonin levels. So I started to look into the research and one of the the serotonin uh, polymorphisms, 5-HTTLPR polymorphism, they found that 
there were differences seen between men and women uh, when they, um, in these acute tryptophan depletion studies, men became more impulsive, women showed uh, mood reduction. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that this is an issue. It could be other reasons, but this was just one um, genetic uh, uh, polymorphism that I wanted to share because we're talking on the summit. Other reasons could be, you know, they're not getting enough uh, dietary uh, protein in their diet. It could be that they don't have enough B6, and you know, in order mm-hmm. to help with as a cofactor. But um, what I, you know, I don't say to folks who have this issue. It doesn't mean stop collagen. It doesn't mean don't use gelatin. It just means that if you are noticing these mood effects. It's possible that you've got this genetic uh, polymorphism and you may need to supplement with tryptophan in order to counter those effects. Well, you know, for years I've told people there's no perfect food. Every food has a front and a back, positive and negative side to it. And when I read a newsletter that you sent out about collagen, I thought, uh, I'm so glad you put that out there that not it's not the perfect food and everybody should be on it for exactly the reasons you said, beautiful skin, gut soothing the gut lining and all. And I also have another reason for not using it. And I'm not saying don't ever use it, but when people have yeast infections, um, the yeast in the body use collagen or they have an enzyme called collagenase that they produce that breaks down the collagen and causes oxalates. And B6, by the way, is really, really critical to be up on for oxalate issues. So that's my big concern about collagen. And then I, when I read that uh, on your um, newsletter about uh, the connection to serotonin, I was really amazed that you found that. Uh, so it isn't the perfect food and people need to be careful about, you know, again, is it right for you? This is the whole concept of personalized nutrition. Yep. I'm glad you raised the point of oxalates, the other possible reasons, mechanisms as to why collagen may cause problems other than lowering serotonin or causing these oxidative issues is that it can um, be, have high histamine, it can cause a high histamine reaction, and it can also, it also has high levels of glutamate. So if you possibly have, a, you know, a GAD1 gene that mm-hmm. is expressing, that might be a reason as well. So there's many mm-hmm. uh, possible, and it's a matter of figuring out the root cause. The great mm-hmm. way to figure out if it is related to low serotonin is if you're having these mood issues and this insomnia, uh, try tryptophan. If the, that goes away, then you know it's related to low serotonin. Wait, say that again, because why can't you just give up the collagen? And So if you are getting those benefits from collagen. I've had a lot of people tell me it's helped tremendously with, you know, arthritic symptoms, uh, with skin problems. So you're getting those amazing benefits. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, they might benefit from the addition, additional uh, collagen. Then if you, if you are getting the mood issues, and you think it might be low serotonin, add in the tryptophan. And if those mood issues go away and it's not affecting your sleep, then you can continue to take it. But we don't want to be taking something that's causing problems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's really a really good tip there. So Tree, are there other genes that you've um, had time to look at that are connected with anxiety? Yes, I mentioned the MTHFR uh, polymorphism, specifically the A. 
1298C. Um, we, you've, I know you've had other people speaking about methylation, but this gene is needed to make serotonin as well. It's needed to make uh, other neurotransmitters. So this could definitely play a role. I mentioned how it's needed for detox. Uh, so it's, it really plays a role in helping us get rid of environmental toxins. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the types of anxiety that I, I help people with is pyroluria, which is yeah. uh, considered genetic. I know there's some uh, people saying that it might be environmental and maybe those, those environmental toxins are triggering the pyroluria. But I've seen many people with pyroluria also have one or both of the MTHFR polymorphisms. And we know that uh, methylation polymorphisms play a role in uh, miscarriages and uh, fertility issues. But we also know that miscarriages are common in pyroluria and more often than not, it's the baby boys that are miscarried. So there may be a connection there. Um, I don't think we've got enough mm. research to confirm it, but there certainly is a possibility there. You mentioned the COMT uh, polymorphism and how it affects dopamine production and how too much uh, dopamine can increase anxiety. Um, the OXTR gene, which is an oxytocin receptor gene, uh, there's some research showing that that may play a role in postpartum depression and anxiety. Um, and then the other genes that I've had uh, quite a lot of uh, I've looked at quite extensively are some of the CYP liver enzyme polymorphisms, uh, cytochrome P450. There's uh, two genes that seem to play a role in um, in uh, using when you're using benzodiazepines. Now, benzodiazepines are commonly prescribed for anxiety. It's a class of medications. I don't think anyone should be on. Too many people are prescribed them long-term. They build up tolerance. They start to get rebound symptoms. It's very difficult to taper. And there's a subset of people who are trying to taper benzos, um, for example, Valium and Xanax, Ativan, and they have a really, really hard time. And it seems like there are some of these liver polymorphisms that may be playing a role. Um, there's other factors. Certainly if people are on a benzodiazepine, they've also been prescribed birth control pill. They've been on antifungal medications. They've, mm. um, they use alcohol or, or other medications. But if they've got the CYP, 2C19 polymorphism, that can be a problem if they're using Valium. If they've got the CYP3A5 polymorphism, that can be a problem if they're using, if they've been prescribed Xanax and they're trying to taper. So if, if someone is trying to taper their benzo and they're having a really big issue, being aware of those polymorphisms are important. The other thing is, Donna, is a lot of people when they're doing a taper, they'll use the Professor Ashton's uh, benzodiazepine taper program protocol, which tells them how to taper down really, really, really slowly working mm. with their doctor. And they'll often say switch from whatever they're on to Valium. That seems to be the one that they're often told to switch to. But if you have that polymorphism, maybe that's not the best thing to do. So I think um, we're in our infancy with this, but it's certainly something to be aware of when it comes to the benzodiazepines. And then the final one that I want to mention that ties directly to anxiety is another um, liver enzyme. And this is the CYP1A2, which tells mm -hmm. us how we process caffeine. 
And uh, if you have this polymorphism, it could mean that you process caffeine very slowly. And there's actually research showing that if you have this polymorphism and you drink coffee, it can increase your risk of heart attack. I do know that caffeine can also, uh, there's a ton of research showing it can trigger anxiety, it can trigger panic attacks. A number of studies show that people have tried therapy, they've tried meds, and they've still got anxiety. As soon as they give up the caffeine, the anxiety goes away as well. So we don't want to forget about the coffee. (laughs) Well, not just coffee, chocolate. And, you know, you will always, all foods have a front and back. So you will always find um, research about how certain bioactives and molecules and coffee and chocolate, for example, are, are good for us. But um, I have the CYP1A2 two variants, and um, I, I never, I would never eat chocolate or drink coffee. I don't drink coffee, but I would never have it at night because I would never sleep then. I'd be up all night long, wired, cleaning house, doing all kinds of things, you know, <laughs> listening to podcasts, whatever. But I just couldn't fall asleep. So that's an example. But if you couple that with adrenal fatigue, for example, when you're burned out and push yourself too hard and now you're stimulating yourself by having this caffeine, which people often do because they're so tired and they've got to be up and drive their kids to school or whatever. They drink their coffee, they have their caffeine, but they're getting more and more burned out. So I, I see that all the time. So I love looking at that CYP1A2. It also has a role in degrading um, estrogen as does comp, the COMT gene. Uh, so there, you know, it's a, the old study of the nutritional genomics. So I, just in case people don't have never heard CYP uh, genes, there's um, about 52 of them and they're made, they're in the liver and they process the chemicals and the drugs and molecules and food. Uh, they process our hormones because everything goes through the liver and goes through what's called stage one, that's your CYP450. So anytime you hear CYP450 or no, you're talking about genes in the liver that are processing something. And then when that something gets uh, processed and goes into stage two, other genes come along, particularly your glutathione genes. So they're good to, to look at too. And you know, Trudy, I haven't talked... Nobody really, I guess Chris Masterjohn went into methylation, but for the most part, no one's talked about it. And I know when uh, I know when I first started learning about genes, methylation was what everybody was talking about, particularly the MGHFR was really, really popular. Uh, ben Lynch was talking about it. People had um, websites, MGHFR websites. That's kind of a complicated place to jump into gene learning. Like, so I deliberately didn't do, don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of methylation talk, but you know, it is, I don't think it's the first thing you have to look at, although it's super important, but I don't want to scare people off. I'd rather than learn practical things like everything we've talked about today. Uh, So is there any kind of last minute thoughts? And most of all, can you tell people, I know that you have done fantastic summits yourself all on anxiety. And I love the experts that you have on. I love that the way you interview people is excellent and always easy to understand. So every single one of them is valuable. So I highly recommend your, you know, people learning about your summits. Um, but just what else? I mean, how can they, I know you write your book um, and of course your website and newsletter and everything. So it's just can tell what else can people learn and by going to your website and give us your website, by the way. 
Well, thank you. And thanks for saying that about the summits. I love doing them. And we had you on the last summit and it's, mm-hmm. it's really great to be able to highlight experts and be able to share our expertise. But um, you come Jenny. so well prepared. I mean, I can tell that you put a lot of thought into every single one of your interviews. It's very clear that you do that. So. Oh, well, I'm thank impressed. You. <laughs> well, I love doing it. And I wanted to, so to end off, I just want to say uh, your genes are not your destiny. As you've heard today, there's lots that we can do about it, but taking heed when you do know that you have a genetic polymorphism that may be affecting you, just like you, Donna, um, coffee is an absolute no-no for me. Chocolate is a no-no for me. And that's fine. I, you know, it means that I can, I've got I've got power. I've got control over how I feel. So I love that you said it's empowerment. It gives us control over mm-hmm. how we live our lives and what we choose to do. And as far as resources, the Anxiety Summits, my book, The Anti-Anxiety Food Solution, I send out a newsletter once a week where I like to really make connect the dots and, and dig up, dig some of the research, look into some of the research and sort of, you know, I really, I'm a research geek. I love to look at the research. And then I also um, have online programs where I help people use the amino acids to help them learn how to assess their symptoms and use the amino acids. And then I teach practitioners through the Anxiety Nutrition Institute as well. So mm. I um, wow. I would love love to see more and more practitioners using the amino acids because it's it's so powerful to help um, ease that anxiety. So whatever whatever you're working on, if you're less anxious, you're less overwhelmed, you're more able to make the other changes that you need to make. And then as far as getting off the the sugar and the gluten and the coffee, you can use these amino acids to help break that addiction. And it just makes it a lot easier. So there's no willpower. And I just, so I'm so thrilled that we got to do this interview and um, I'm excited to share this information with my community. So thanks for having me, Donna. Well, I think we're going to have, I mean, I know for a fact that um, many, many tens of thousands of practitioners have signed up for this because they know this is the future. We, we know about the microbiome and we'll continue to study that world. But now this new field of genomics, genetics, nutritional genomics is here to stay and practitioners have to learn all this. So that's great to know that you have that training. I didn't realize that. You know, your book, would you say that today it's still timely? Um, you read it quite a while ago. Would that still be a good resource for people? It absolutely is. I refer to people, uh, you know, to read it all the time. It's got a whole chapter on the amino acids and then, you know, chapters on diet and a whole chapter on pyroluria. And it's got, Mm. uh, you know, chapters on gluten and caffeine and stress. So yes, very, very relevant. Um, It would be good to do an update though. (laughs) So thanks for the nudge. It is time, right? Yes, it is time. Yeah, thank thank you, you so much, Trudy Scott. Please, everybody, buy the summit and listen to this interview again and take notes. It's great, really important in, in, uh, information. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big diet person. I'm a big microbiome person. And there's a huge connection between the microbes in our gut and our genes. But what Trudy's talked about today, in my opinion, it is the first place to start. You've got to calm down the stress. You've got to sleep well. Everything we've talked about is the first thing to do. So Trudy, thank you so much for being on the summit. Well, thank you, Donna. 